welcome to this climate briefing podcast recorded one week before the ongoing COP summit in Sharm el-Sheikh. I'm Gareth Price, Senior Research Fellow with the Asia-Pacific Programme at Chatham House. In this podcast, we're looking to understand how the impacts of climate change are cascading within South Asia. Earlier this year, India and Pakistan witnessed a prolonged heat wave, which started in March, months before the usual hot weather. This was followed by and was in part the cause of major flooding in Pakistan, as well as in parts of India. Heat wave affected agriculture severely and the flooding came at immense cost to property and infrastructure. Millions of people across the region were affected. South Asia seems to be one of the regions first affected by the impacts of climate change. And if we can't yet be definitive, the events earlier this year certainly correlate with the impacts predicted by climate modelling. We're here to discuss how these risks interact and to discuss how the region can work together to create resilience to these threats. I'm joined by Aisha Khan, the founder and head of the Civil Society Coalition for Climate Change and Mountain and Glacier Protection Organisation. We're also joined by Professor Danish Mustafa, Professor in Critical Geography at King's College London and co-author of the first climate change response strategy for Pakistan. And finally, we're joined by Jacob Steiner, a glacial hydrologist who works at the International Centre for Integrated Mountain Development, or ISIMOT, an intergovernmental agency based in Kathmandu. Aisha, if I could turn to you first, um, the first question is to ask how you see the impact of the recent heat waves and floods, and how you see the impacts of climate change cascading within South Asia. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Uh, these days, there's a renewed focus on South Asia and the link between climate change and disaster. I think after the recent floods in Pakistan, everyone seems to realize that climate change is not a futuristic event, but it's happening now. And I think now is also a good time for me to refresh people's memory that South Asia is a region with many topographic variations. As a region, we have to tackle with the impacts of climate change in mountain areas, in arid and semi-arid areas, and in the coastal belt. We're also a region in which monsoons are a regular feature. Climate change has an impact on everything, which means that we have to deal with glacial melting, glacial lake outburst floods, riverine and flash floods, heat islands, and coastal surges. So what starts with water imbalance results in either hydrometeorological disasters or drought and desertification. Both result in food, water, and energy crisis, increase poverty, displace people, result in out-migration, put pressure on urban centers, cause losses in farmland and livelihoods, spread diseases, and enhance the vulnerability of women, children, and differently abled people. The issue is that as scarcities grow, the yawning gap between supply and demand and the widening gap between the rich and the poor also increases. This sets the stage for societal strife and violent conflict. The recent heat wave means that the increasing difference between land and ocean temperature will result in more intense monsoons in the coming years. Recurring disasters trigger an exponential increase in economic losses, but they also cause an exponential decrease in coping capacity. South Asia is a volatile region, and we cannot afford risk of any escalation in tension, especially triggered by factors that affect human security. There are opportunities for reducing risks by working together as one South Asia. But for that, we need to look at our relationship dynamics through a different lens and redefine our priorities for engagement. Perfect. Can I add a subsidiary question to that? That you note that there's a kind of widespread understanding that the impacts of climate change are being seen. 
Is it generating the domestic political response that you would like to see? To a certain extent, yes, but I don't think that we're seeing the kind of response to address the challenge of climate change at the scale that is required, because there are too many political distractions happening right now, and that is taking away attention from the main issues that people are facing as a challenge, food, water, energy, livelihoods, shelter. How do you see the role of civil society in building resilience against the threats posed by climate change? Civil society has a very vital role to play in deciding what kind of future it wants and make informed choices and then work towards achieving that goal. Civil society can act in multiple ways to shape policy and change perceptions. We've been working with mountain communities for 20 years, and a lot has changed during that time. The communities are now receptive and responding differently and learning lessons from our own experience. We've also modified our communication strategy. So what works in community is empowering the local community and working on the principles of inclusion. For us, the three guiding principles that have helped us to earn community trust, which is vital in establishing a relationship, are transparency, accountability, and co-creating policies. Another factor that is important in forging alliances between civil society and policymakers is collective ownership and looking at communities not as beneficiaries, but as partners in development. It's also very important to bring women in the decision-making loop and give them an institutional role at community platforms. We've seen in our work with mountain communities that local knowledge and local wisdom sometimes works better than high-tech and costly solutions. The missing link here is the private sector. Private finance needs to play a role in bridging the adaptation finance gap Along with public finance, it can both scale up and incentivize delivery. As a low emitting but high on the impact receiving end, we need to explore multiple options for risk reduction. Cross-boundary collaboration is another area where civil society can push for cooperation. The social media offers opportunity for communication but falls short of getting concrete results. Addressing air pollution with joint collaboration can be a win-win priority agenda for everyone. Drawing lessons from past, I think it would be safe to say that if learning is not internalized, it loses its value. If impact is not maximized, it is unable to realize its full potential. And if innovation is not incentivized, change is not likely to take place. And innovation essentially means thinking out of the box. And in South Asia, there are many boxes that need repackaging and perhaps relabeling. As a follow-up question, you see the challenges posed by climate change and associated threats such as air pollution as a potential where cross-border cooperation is limited. How would you go about the modalities of cross-border cooperation on areas such as climate change or air pollution? I think when we talk about South Asia as a region, we have to also understand that we have to talk specifically about India and Pakistan, because these are the two countries who have not been able to set their relationship right in the last 75 years. So they are the reason for stalling progress in South Asia as a whole. So what I see as the role of civil society is to perhaps understand science better, because if they understood the 
climate science and the impact it would have on them, their lives directly, perhaps they would change their responses from political views to more social and economic ways of finding a solution to this problem. So civil society, I think the collaboration between science and society is very important. And once that starts to happen, it can happen in person. It can happen, uh, you know, through the social media communication, although there's no substitute for in-person contact with people. I've always found that it works better when you meet people and you understand each other. You can actually resolve a lot of issues that you cannot do if you have perceived ideas about each other's countries. So I think collaboration between civil society, once it begins and civil society acknowledges that there is need for change, then it can trigger that, that demand, which can then make policy fall in step. Danish, could you talk a little about what those locally based solutions or interventions might look like in practice? Well, I'll talk about heat stress. I mean, already in uh, Pakistan, you have some of the hottest cities on the planet. And you routinely in the past decade or so, we are recording some of the highest temperatures uh, that have ever been recorded anywhere in the world. Now, their heat stress, once the wet bulk temperature crosses 35 degrees, the human body cannot cool down and people die. And hundreds and if not thousands die unremarked and unnoticed every year in Pakistan and the global south, rest of the global south. And part of the culprit there is the inappropriate urban design. Pakistan, like many other countries in the world, has taken on the worst excesses of the automobile-dependent urban sprawl kind of a design in case of Pakistan. So increasingly, the new urban developments in Pakistan are more towards, uh, again, as I said, automobile dependency. And that has had catastrophic consequences for the poor people in particular. I mean, after all, 95% of the Pakistan's population does not own motorized transport. Yet 99% of the investment is going towards facilitating 5% of the people who do own any kind of motorized transport. So what you could probably have is more denser, multi-purpose, multifunctional kind of urban development with the appropriate local materials for uh, housing. Uh, which could mitigate the effect of extreme uh, heat. Uh, the traditional, uh, say, mud adobe uh, housing is wonderful in the sense that it is cooler in the winters and warmer in the summers. The newer sort of modern uh, design based upon concrete and bricks tends to be hotter in the summer and colder in the winter. Again, all dependent upon air conditioning, which perhaps only 2 to 3%, if that even, 1 to 2% of the Pakistan's population can afford. So these very sensible kinds of things of more compact urban development can considerably mitigate any kind of heat stress uh, related issues that might arise. Equally with the flood, uh, with the flooding situation, the whole idea I've always talked about is about drainage. They, they have built canals, they have built uh, barrages, they have built dams. For example, take the recent uh, rains in the Sindh where uh, water essentially uh, cooled up. Excessive rains happened, the, uh, the river did not flood. And now, two months after uh, the flooding, uh, after the inundation, the water is still standing there. And why is it standing there? Because its natural drainage has been interrupted by drains, by canals, by railroads, by berms uh, for roads. And not enough attention was paid to the natural drainage of the water so that even if the inundation takes place, it drains quickly so that people can get back to what they need to do. Now, these sorts of things basically require listening to local people because even a child in the floodplain of uh, Indus rivers or any other rivers can tell you which way the water is flowing. 
except that the elite engineers and flood managers don't listen to them. And the result is for us to see that even two months after the inundation, people are dying of heat stress, people are dying of uh, dysentery, cholera, malaria, and all sorts of diseases which actually breed in stagnant water that's been there for, for about two months now. If we, if we realize that there is a market, right, and that brings us back to also getting buy-in from governments, if we can show how we can build economy by trying to find solutions for, for climate risks, and that there are um, ways of running a business that not only can find solutions, be that electrification of public transport or private transport or solar panels for pumping groundwater rather than diesel and do that with the newest technology, then we are killing a couple of birds with, uh, with the same stone because we, we create opportunities for young people to, to get into an exciting market you know, where otherwise it's, it's, it's not that easy to build your own business because the, the economic environment for small businesses in the region has been challenging. There is a lot of hope on the horizon, like markets like Pakistan or Bangladesh, for example, have been very, very conducive to, to the startup culture. Right? There's a lot of venture capital coming in to new smart solutions, but only a very small fraction of them is tackling anything related to, to climate risks. But there, there, would, there would be a lot if, if we show young potential entrepreneurs, and that could also be young scientists who, who don't want to stay in academia, but they want to go into, you know, like classical Stanford graduates who want to stay in Silicon Valley and, 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 and run, a, run an, a successful full business and basically just make money, which is very understandable for everyone. That's also what governments want. If we can show that potential to both uh, the young generation and the governments, then I think that there, there is a lot of potential to actually getting to solutions. Aisha, what do you see as the opportunities for and challenges to regional cooperation to respond to climate change? I think that within the region, there are other ways of looking at collaboration beyond issues that are contentious. So we should be looking to decouple politics from climate-related issues, and we should be looking for opportunities where we can have better collaboration and cooperation, which is mutually beneficial for the region. I think that point has not registered so far that it's going to affect everyone. And my major concern always remains the shared source of water, because one thing climate change will definitely do is to change the hydrology. Either the melting will be too fast or there'll be less snow and there'll be very little water. So that scarcity can actually trigger tensions and conflict in the region. So we, we need to promote hydro solidarity. We need to see how we can all do more with less because in coming years, we are bound to have climate disasters. There's enough carbon packed in the atmosphere to ensure that we're not going to be living in a safe planet and adaptation is going to be the new normal for us. So the closer we try to work together with each other in the region, the better it will be. And there's so many different lessons that we can learn from each other, information that we can share with each other, joint researches that we can conduct. But the most important thing is that we need to start thinking of us as one region and not as different countries with individual trajectories. Jacob Steiner, could I turn to you with the same question? 
yeah, are, are important to acknowledge. So I, I, I know three examples that I, I think are, are, would be helpful in, in helping us anticipating you know, consequences of climate risks and not making the same mistakes again. So one example I can give you is, is on monitoring. Right? So in, in the region, we've been saying a lot that we, we just need to measure more. We need to measure climate more. We need to measure all kinds. We need to have more information on ecosystems, on livelihoods. Because we don't have enough data. Very specifically, specifically when you look at the climate and meteorological data, that really has led to investment, a lot of money into hardware, right? more weather stations at, for example, very high elevations, because that's really where we understand the least. Right? We don't know so much what is happening to snow and, and precipitation in, in high mountain environments, which makes it very difficult for us to anticipate floods, for example. But then what, what happened a bit was, okay, you know, ordering a weather station is relatively straightforward. You just need to be able to fork over the money kind of, and then the weather station arrives and you put it somewhere. But then a much more challenging question is, okay, who is going to manage that hardware? Who is going to manage the data so that we can then actually turn that data into, into knowledge and that, that knowledge into policy? And that long-term part of the monitoring People haven't been thinking so much about because it's much more it, it's much more annoying to think about it. It's much easier to say, well, I'm going to buy a weather station. I'm going to do an expedition. Where, you know, we're going to have a lot of great pictures. I'm going to stand up on the mountain. I'm going to put that weather station there, and 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 there's going to be press coverage of it. But then the background of yeah, curating that data and, and making making sense of it is less glamorous. So we can learn from that that when we identify new gaps to address climate risks. We really have to think all the way, right? When we set new actions, for example, now with you know loss and damage is one term that is relatively, you know, it's not it's not new in the scientific uh, debate, but it's it has it has gained gained a lot of traction very recently in the region. If you talk about loss and damage, we'll have to think in a long way, right? What does that actually imply? Um, it's not just we need this much money to address risks. We have to think, okay, what are those risks? Where does that money go? Uh, how how do we make sure that it's being it's being uh, used in in a sustainable way in an effective way, and that that is going to be a huge challenge. In 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 that respect, and that's also one past failure, I think a bit, and a recent research paper by Chatham actually on uh, loss and damage finance has mentioned that as well. So one problem was that there has been a lot of confusion over concepts, right? So there is still not. Not everyone is really clear what does loss and damage, for example, mean. And, and if not everyone is you know, talking the same language and has the same understanding of what those terms actually imply, then, then we have a problem. And then finally, what I think is what is also a past failure of, especially when, when we, we look at you know, scientists from the global north who have been dri driving a lot of the debate on, on how we understand risks in, in the region, we have to acknowledge the colonial history of climate risks. because. Many of the countries well, here in South Asia, they have been colonies. That means the way they have their institutional structure is built. The offices and the different ministries are structured to respond to climate risks is very much a result of, of the history of those countries. Right? And that's a bit difficult for us as physical science. So I'm a physical scientist and I often, you know, I don't necessarily have to deal with, with history or social science. It's absolutely important that we acknowledge that there is a history in the region for all those institutions, because only then can we you know, undo perhaps inadequate capacities to, to address those climate risks. If we don't know what the actual underlying challenges of those institutions are, that is going to be very, very difficult.
Danish. I think one of the problems with northern conventional environmentalism has been the focus at a planetary scale and at best at the international scale. Whereas most of the problems are actually experienced and actuate at the local scale, if you will. We're talking about city to city, village to village, uh, region to region, and so on. The only pathway that I can see for international cooperation is in terms of knowledge sharing and in terms of uh, experience sharing between different countries as to what are the best practices that are happening in one part and how might they be applicable to specific regions. So, for example, I work in Pakistan. So in Pakistan, the kinds of challenges, climate challenges you face in the extreme north of Pakistan, mountainous north of Pakistan, are very different from what they are down south in the desert plains of Sindh or in Balochistan or between central Punjab and so on. So what one needs is a local-based approach, if you will. That's where a whole set of policy intervention, practical interventions, which are, which are sensitive to local experiences, local climatic conditions, probably going to be the most useful ones. So second question, how can policymakers be encouraged to prioritize longer-term resilience over short-term political goals? I think that there can be two aspects to this. In the first instance, policymakers, elite capital-based policymakers, typically respond to what is politically expedient at a given time. Now, if uh, there is a strong enough push on part of the civil society, on part of the public, mobilizing uh, political opinion uh, regarding addressing of these climatic challenges from heat stress to flooding to droughts to tornadoes to uh, uh, hurricanes, uh, I think that uh, that could be one approach where one is empowering the civil society to take this agenda forward. The other part of it is that I think in the global south and Pakistan being no exception is largely a consumer of knowledge passed down from the global north, if you will. Centers of, uh, you know, I teach at King's College London, so the knowledge that is generated at King's College London tends to have more currency than knowledge created in or indigenous knowledge that is already extant in, say, Central Sindh or Upper Sindh or uh, in uh, Gilgit, Baltistan, and so on. Not that either one of those knowledges are less or more uh, legitimate. I think they are perhaps equally legitimate. But at the moment, we have a monologue going on between the global north and south, where the global north comes up with, and the research centers and institutions like the World Bank, like Chatham House, where we are sitting right now, they have a certain legitimacy. Uh, They have a certain uh, prestige. So that prestigious knowledge passed down uh, to the global south at times, remodulating and reconfiguring that knowledge, which is sensitive to local subjectivities, local experiences, and sensible local-based solutions is one pathway of uh, sort of doing it. And the other one is, of course, emphasizing again and again and again that the historically capital-intensive, infrastructure-intensive approaches that have been taken towards development, be it floodplain development, be it towards urban design, are unlikely uh, to be very useful in a climate change present. Do you want to say something about the challenge of, of building resilience? Well, my view has always been that the distinction between mitigation and so-called adaptation uh, is problematic. I do not think that there is a, there's a difference between them. First of all, I have a problem with the term adaptation in the first instance because it comes from biological sciences. It's a biological concept and it is species that adapt over a longer period of time. I think what we have done is uh, scientize and, and naturalize what is really a social process. 
of adjusting to different biophysical conditions. So I would say, as I indicated in my earlier uh, comment, that a compact, multifunctional, walkable city that helps adjust to greater heat stress is also a low-carbon emitting city. Equally less dependent upon high energy air conditioning or anything like that is a low-carbon emitting city design. So mitigation and adaptation, low-carbon development is automatically also a higher adjustment and a more resilient kind of a development. Equally with floodplains, when one is talking about restoration of wetlands in order to uh, mitigate the effect of riverine flooding, automatically that is also uh, wetlands are major carbon sinks. So on the one hand, you're mitigating floods, but also you are uh, mitigating carbon emissions from it. With heat stress, as I said, that heat stress is in fact accentuated by heat island effect. And the heat island effect is largely a function of concrete, asphalt, and uh, transportation-related emissions, if you will. So a different kind of an urban design, different kind of a community design, more walkable cities with more appropriate materials, automatically mitigate and adjust to the climate challenge. Equally with floodplains, you're talking about more ecological approaches to mitigating flood peaks is automatically adjustment as well as mitigation. And one could get into any other spheres as well. And what you find is that ultimately low carbon development is in fact the pathway to a more resilient future. As one of my colleagues would say, a lot of the international adaptation story is more about how do we change so that we remain the same. Essentially, what we have been doing is a high mass production, mass consumption society, which has brought us to where we are with climate change. And the idea is that we need to adjust to climate change such that mass production, mass consumption society, which is fundamentally problematic in uh, going forward on planet Earth, something that we need to continue with while in the meantime also adjusting to the climate challenge. I think there's a wee bit of a paradox at the heart of the whole enterprise that many of us are unwilling to name and to address. Jacob Stein with the same question. I think the only way to do that is to show them the economic cost of inaction, the economic cost of not doing that, the economic cost of not acknowledging that this is a long-term thing and short-term solutions are not, uh, are not doing it. Because, well, governments have to consider their economies and they will, in the end, really only be behind solutions if it also makes sense for them, you know, from an economic standpoint. That means, for example, here with a recent, uh, recent disaster, when I talk to people who were affected by that, the big debris flow that happened last year, the people that we talked to that were, you know, or their houses were swept away and many of, you know, family members died, they said very clearly that the disaster started the day after the event. So the, the, the flood itself, of course, was very bad and it destroyed our, you know, our infrastructure that day. But then for us, the disaster is that since then, this is now more than a year ago, the infrastructure still hasn't been rebuilt. We cannot reach our hospitals anymore. We are scared that this is going to happen again. There is an impact on our mental health. So this is what we're most concerned about, that the government in this case is not responding to those long-term effects. And we could by now put monetary terms to these um, impacts, right? The fact that the roads are, are not being repaired after a flood event effect on that on 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 disconnectivity that children for example can't go to school anymore because the, the school is in another village where the, the road isn't safe enough or that uh, that people cannot reach hospitals anymore which would be there otherwise so that the government you know the country would provide them but they they cannot be reached because the infrastructure to to transport people isn't 
being upkept anymore after a disaster, that can be expressed in economic terms, right? Because that's going to affect the ability of the people in in that specific locality on on being, you know, contributing to the economy of the country themselves. They also cannot bring their produce to local markets anymore. But what we haven't done so far, and that's also very important in the loss and damage discussion, we really haven't taken stock of the value of that infrastructure with all its direct and indirect implications. So this, this we really have to do to be able to then say, okay, you know, to a policymaker, imagine a flood is coming down in, in this valley and the deposits would remain on those roads for five months to come. This would cost your regional economy this much um, over this long of a time frame. And if you then put that into context with, you know, national GDP and, and also the ramifications it has on the national economy, then I think we can get policymakers on board that it's it's absolutely crucial to think about long-term resilience. We have to, it, not everything can be expressed in money, but we have to, to, to some degree, um, at least uh, turn those natural hazards into economic terms to make it uh, palatable for politicians to take, you know, to take action. Danish, hopes and expectations from the COP summit. Yes, uh, I'm saying that this is the 27th meeting of Conference of Parties, and therein lies a wee bit of a cause for a cynical view of it, that you, you ha- you're having to meet the 27th time to try to figure out what to do about a almost like a fundamental challenge to humanity. So therefore, to say that this 27th is going to be different from the 26th, or we will not need a 28th because we will solve things in this particular instance, I'm not hugely optimistic. I think part of it is the structure of the international system where all politicians showing up over there are ultimately answerable to their individual constituencies and they have different kinds of agendas there. I think that the power to do something in terms of mitigating uh, climate change lies with the global north. For the global north with the sort of challenges it is facing with the cost of living crisis here in the UK, inflation all over uh, EU and North America and uh, jobs and so on. Uh, they keep using off-the-shelf kinds of solutions for generating growth and the focus on growth as a, as, as a fundamental driver of development and economic prosperity. I think as long as growth continues to be at the heart of the economic thinking and developmental thinking of the world, I think we are bound to be disappointed by these COP meetings. That There'll be a 28th one next year, there'll be a 29th one, the 30th one. I don't know. I feel not very optimistic unless fundamental questions are asked by the civil society, by the people, of their politicians, in terms of we need to change. We need to change very fundamentally in order uh, to negotiate this excellent challenge of climate change. Yeah, so so my hope for, for these COPs, so especially in yeah, for the for the one this year, but also next year, links a bit to my earlier comment that I think you know it's very important that we acknowledge the colonial history of climate risks, right? Because I think that the fact that those COPs are now here in the region, it creates ownership. It creates ownership of the debate. So the discussion is driven by the countries from the region rather than this being an event called by, by the global north who says, you know, we we are we are mindful of the fact that this is an issue, so don't, why don't we all come together and we think these are the priorities. No, this way you're not going to have buy-in from, from all the stakeholders, right? It's it, the, the, the affected countries, they have to drive the narrative. The second point that I'm hopeful about and where perhaps, well, I'm, I have expectations, but the expectations are not super high, is that there is progress on, on loss and damage. 
so this was also in 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 a, in a really good in an op-ed that you currently have on, on on the Chatham site, where where the authors are saying we must make sure that the current political challenges globally don't impede the discussions at COP. And they also say that you know we should focus on getting things done rather than coming up with new goals. Now it's it's really time to to, to pick up whatever was discussed in Glasgow last year or also at other fora, and and we have to talk about okay how are we actually going to achieve all that because. Too often we've been setting lofty goals, and then there was very little, very little follow-on to, to actually achieve those. And it's also, it is of course easier to to to, to define a, a lofty goal rather than than to sit down and, and talk the whole hard talk on, on how how we actually going to get there. And what is a bit difficult at the moment, of course, with the loss and damage discussion, is that countries like Pakistan leading that or pushing that whole. Um, Debate a bit also after the floods, which is great. Also, that is for ownership is super important. That they are perceived as being, you know, just coming to the table and saying we want this many, um, you know, millions or billions of US dollars uh, pay up, and and also stakeholders that have talked to, uh, you know, outside of the region, they feel very much such a demand simply is not going. You know, we we're not going to go even engage in in that. A because of the liability that would hold it, it would hold for the future, right? It, we don't want to keep paying indefinitely, and and also because it's a bit it's it's a bit too simple to, to just to, you know fork over money. So it will be absolutely so. That's my big hope and expectation for COP that countries will come together and think hard about what will be the mechanisms to to actually to get to solutions on on paying for all those damages because they are there and who, you know, on the global scale is is responsible for it. There should not be a lot of debate about it anymore. This is pretty clear. Aisha? I've been attending the COPs since 2014, but off late, I noticed that there is a lot of disenchantment and discontent with the COP process. That has increased and the hopes attached for a just transition are diminishing. This is perhaps largely due to wealthy countries not reducing emissions fast enough or put, not putting enough money to meet the adaptation needs of the vulnerable and developing countries. For the developing and the vulnerable countries, loss and damage has always been a priority agenda and it has not so far been recognized as an agenda item. Perhaps the recent magnitude of the floods and the other losses that countries are experiencing is shifting rhetoric from disappointment to anger. So COP21 and its outcome will actually set the stage for COP28. From COP27, what developing countries or the region and vulnerable countries are looking at is reaching some sort of agreement on new climate finance commitment doubling adaptation finance, and recognizing loss and damage as a separate finance facility. I do also understand that the post-COVID and ongoing war in Ukraine has changed the geopolitical landscape and dented the global economy. So at the global level, one hopes that by COP28, the world would have moved beyond existing tensions and shows more willingness to focus on climate action and fulfilling the moral mandate of the Paris Agreement. And at the regional level, I think this should serve as a wake-up call to heighten realization for collaboration and the need for using regional assets and resources to build a strong South Asia. 
we must accept that we are interconnected and the cascading impacts will affect everyone. Lack of cooperation will result in avoidable losses for which eventually we will have to take the responsibility. Thank you all for listening. It's been a sobering account of the risks posed by climate change in a seemingly highly vulnerable part of the world. The need for action is paramount, and I'm struck by the economic case for immediate action, without which the costs are likely to be severe, and the economic impact likely to undo decades of progress in poverty alleviation. Thank you for listening. Thank you.